All right. All right, so today we are addressing a question that to me is central to many others. How open should our university be to the net? And we have four participants to engage with us in an experiment in empathic argument for openness. Going left to right, just so you know who's coming, Stuart Schieber, Chairman of the Provost's Committee on Open Access, a professor researching computational linguistics in engineering. And the person who supervises my daughter Rebecca's graduate studies. Anne Margulies. Your title, Anne, what is it? Executive Director. Executive Director of MIT Open Courseware. Someone I knew when she was in the provost's office here at Harvard, back when we did our first Internet and Society Conference, which, like the one coming up, was co-chaired by Charles Ogletree and me, and which, in some sense, addressed this question, although we hadn't formulated it quite the same way, how open should the university be to the net? Laura DeBonis, Google. Google Books. Google. I'm here representing the gorilla. And Sid Verba, <laughs> university librarian, professor in political science, and Sid, what is your specialty? What do you... Uh, in American politics and comparative politics, citizen engagement, voting behavior, statistical studies of the mass public. Interpret the court of public opinion. So now we have a plan of action, which is to introduce each for five minutes or so, so that we come to understand what it is that they're about. And then I want to have you challenge them to argue empathically to you in your role as their opponent, their reasonable, thoughtful opponent. So, for example, the poor faculty member you met at the end of the last class who was scared to death of technology sweeping over his world and felt like he ought to retire but maybe could just hold off the future for a little bit more. 
and would definitely be a no vote on what these folks are proposing. So let's begin. Laura, take the mic. Stop twiddling it because it will make terrible noises on the tape. Hold it gently in your fingers and tell us, who are you? What do you do? <laughs> um, well, thanks for having me today. Is it supposed to sound louder or is nope, it kind no of... Nope, there's no PA in this. Okay. This is strictly for the tape. Um, I'm Laura DeBonis and I've been at Google for a while and for the past almost three years now I've worked on Google Book Search, um, primarily on the library partnerships and with our small and medium-sized publishers who are partners as well on a different part of Book Search. I've had the pleasure to work with Sid for a long time. Um, I'm not sure how much you all know about Book Search. Has anyone, has anyone heard of Book Search? Show of hands. Oh, good. Has anyone used Book Search? Show of hands. One, two. Excellent. Oh, four people. Good, good, good. Um, book Search, in brief, is our effort at Google to scan the corpus of the world's books um, and make them searchable and findable through Google. We think about the world of books as having maybe 100 million books in total, roughly, is sort of the number we use in round terms. Um, and we have a couple of different means of dealing with the different types of books you find in the world. So we think about books as divided into kind of three categories. First batch is public domain, which is about 20% of the world's books. Second batch is in copyright and in print, which is about 5% of the world's books. And then there's a vast group of books, about 75%, where the copyright status is unknown for whatever reason. For each of those three classes of books, we have a different way of presenting the information in book search. If it's a public domain book, we show the book full text on book search. You can search through the whole book, and you can literally read the entire book online. We also recently um, released a feature where you can download the PDF to your laptop or desktop and print it if you so choose, which was a feature that Sid was extremely instrumental in getting pushed through the process at Google. Um, so that's the public domain experience. If you are a publisher and you have in-copyright, in-print books and you sign a contract with us, we show X percent of the pages of your book also in full text but we don't show the full text of the book. So it's however much of the percent of the book you want to have show on Google, we show that percent for you in, in terms of full pages. And then the vast middle percent of the book where it's in copyright or copyright status uncertain, um, we show something called snippets. Um, for each keyword that someone types into Google searching over the book, we search through the full text of the book, but we only show three snippets of text for each keyword. And this is kind of where <laughs> the legal controversy has erupted, is around our treatment of the in-copyright books that we do not have express permission from to use from publishers um, that we get from libraries and we show in snippet form. Um, let's see. Is that enough? That's enough. Okay. Now, you wanted to um, show I was thinking I might show the film after Sid goes. A little... Uh, I have a little short piece of a video that we put together probably eight or ten months ago when we realized that the public discourse about the product was 
not going really the way we wanted it to, either in terms of what the librarians were saying about us, which is a constituency we didn't realize we really needed to woo to start with, um, and also in terms of the broader public who didn't understand what book search was good for, uh, a little bit to counteract all the bad press that we were getting from the publishing side of the world. Not all the bad press, but some of the bad press. So I have something that I can show you guys later that just shows the intent of book search and how it's benefited people. All right. Okay, I'll talk a little bit about why it is that the Harvard Library has been spending a tremendous amount of time, resources, uh, in working together with Google uh, on this project. I won't talk about the legal issues uh, of the different kinds of books and what can be done with each and the arguments in favor or opposed to that, but let me talk with my hat on, one as a social scientist and the other as a director of the library, as to why Harvard is deeply involved in this project and why I think uh, <clears throat> it has a lot of values. In fact, I'll talk about two projects that the Harvard Library is doing, the Google Project and something we call the Open Collections Program, which is similar in intent to the Google Project, slightly different in structure, but they both have the same purpose. Uh, Harvard's library is by far the largest non-governmental library in the world. It has 15 million volumes. It's got about 8 million photographs. It's got countless pages of manuscripts and the like. Uh, it is one and a half times the size of any other uh, privately owned library. It is in the category of the mega libraries of the world, uh, which are governmental libraries. Library of Congress, the Bibliothèque Nationale, the British Library, the New York Public Library, are the five mega libraries. I say all this not only to brag, I say this when I try to raise money from people for the library. You don't look like you're ready yet to contribute, so I'll just say it because I think it's relevant to the topic of why we're doing this. These collections are fantastic. They're available to everybody in this room. They're available to all students at Harvard, all faculty at Harvard. Uh, they're not closed to other people. They're open to scholars from all over the world who may come to Cambridge and use these resources, but it's only those who can find their way to Cambridge. Uh, the purpose of the Google Project and our Open Collections program is to open these collections to people outside of Harvard in a free and easily accessible way so that they can benefit from the same kinds of resources that we have at Harvard. My students, if they get a paper they want to write, can go into Widener Library and get to the most obscure books on the topic. They can go into the Houghton Library and get to manuscripts by famous authors. They can look in all sorts of resources. We are trying to do something that will make at least some of these resources, and in some cases a lot of these resources, available to everybody. The Google Project, uh, and we for the time being are do doing only books in public domain that we would like very much to do books that are in copyright as well. The Google Project uh, makes these texts available uh, on your screen. Uh, you can download them and print them. And furthermore, the thing that is very interesting is if you are let's say an ordinary person living in some small town or some small city in the United States, there is a button on there that if you find a book you want, you can press the button and the button says find it in the library. And this takes you to the OCLC, which is a company, a not-for-profit company that creates the digital catalogs 
for most of the public libraries in the United States and most of the college libraries, something like 40 to 50,000 libraries, you put in your zip code and it'll give you a list of the libraries closest to you that contain the book. Think about that for a minute. What it does is it breaks down one of the great barriers that I think is existing already in the world. Uh, many people, usually people a lot younger than me, but many people believe that all wisdom in the world is to be found, you'll pardon the expression, on Google, and that is not true. Uh, there's lots of wisdom locked in books in libraries. And what is wonderful about this project is you go to Google and you wind up in a public library or in your university library. That is a major breakthrough. Uh, <clears throat> the other project we have is designed very differently from the Google project but with the same purpose in mind. We have, uh, with funding from some foundations, built fairly substantial collections on particular topics that are of interest to people teaching, let's say in schools not as well uh, equipped as Harvard with not as many resources, on particular topics that are of interest to people. And we have various projects where we digitize not only books, but we digitize manuscripts, we digitize photographs and the like. Uh, and we've done two so far that are fascinating. One is called Women Working. It's the history of the role of women in the American economy from about the Civil War through 1920. 1920 is a very good symbolic year because it's the year women got the vote and it's also the year before which we know the books are safely out of copyright so we can use them. Uh, and we've put together a collection of about 3,800 books, uh, maybe 80,000, 90,000 pages of manuscripts, a wonderful collection of photographs so that students taking courses or teachers teaching courses have backup material that they can use for teaching the course or to have students write papers on the subject. And you have students in much smaller colleges who have never seen a manuscript who can look at letters written. It's actually very high quality reproductions of letters written by women working in the Lowell Mills, women who went to the first college for women physicians in the United States. Our second project is called uh, Immigration to the United States, roughly over the same period. And you get the same mixture of materials. And a lot of it is absolutely fascinating. The stuff that fascinates me most on, uh, in the Immigration Project is the collection that the Harvard Library has. The Harvard Library, as you might, Harvard, as you might imagine, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, was not a bastion of pro-immigration. It was a bastion of old-fashioned Americanism. And it was here that the Anti-Immigration League was founded. And you can see the manuscripts written by members of the Harvard faculty, some of whose names are on these buildings, about how we have to keep these people out. Uh, and the fascinating thing about all of this stuff is the arguments are exactly the same as one would read in the newspaper today about the Mexican border. So there's a lot to be learned. The third project, I'll say it very briefly because it's, it's, I think it's the most interesting one, it's one that we want to share around the world. It's a project on uh, infect contagion and infectious diseases. It's the literature, both medical, social, political, and economic, on the impact of malaria, cholera, tuberculosis uh, <clears throat> on the world as these things went through. And we, this is one in which we are very anxious to see that the countries in which this is still going on, the sad thing about the world, is these are all historical uh, illnesses that are on the front pages of the paper all the time. So the point is we are opening the collection to people elsewhere who could not get access to this kind of information for, th I would say, four purposes. One is, as, as a political scientist, uh, the main work that I've done about p people's attitudes and 
mass politics and so forth, is on the issue of political equality. Who has voice over the government? Some people have a lot more, some people have a lot less, and I've written a number of books on why that is the case. One of the things about this project is it plays a major role, I think, in spreading equality. It's not going to change the United States, but it will help, I think, a little bit. Uh, in that uh, <coughs> the major engine of equality in the United States, as well as the major engine of inequality in the United States, is education, and in particular, higher education. Everybody wants to get into colleges. They want to get into the best colleges. There are lots of good colleges that are not Harvard or Princeton or Stanford uh, with good teachers and good students. What they don't have is the kind of library resources that Harvard has, and this is an, an attempt to make it spread out to lots of places that don't have these resources. The other thing that's great about the project is that you can find things you couldn't have found unless they were scanned and digitized as the Google project is and as we do in our open collections program because you can search the whole book. You know if you want to find something on a particular topic, you either have to know the book is on the topic or you have to know that the topic you want is in the title because you can search for titles or it has to be one of the subject it, subject items in the Library of Congress listings, which are very few, you can search an entire book to find out if a particular name is there, a particular place, a particular event, changes the whole way in which one can do research. So that's another reason. The other reason is it breaks down this barrier between the internet and libraries. And lastly, it's very useful for the library because it allows us to preserve some books by having digital copies because the paper may be rotting away over time. So for many reasons, it is a socially extremely useful project. All right, Laura, how about let's see your video? Oh, sure. here to do research on paper on doodle delinquency in London 
in the mid-19th century. Now, Roxbury Public Library is a typical suburban library. We have lots of cookbooks, car repair manuals, Daniel Steele books, James Patterson books. We don't have any books at all on juvenile delinquency in London in the mid-19th century. But I thought this would be a good opportunity to try out Google Book Search and show her how it works. We plugged in a few key search words. Within a few seconds, we had a list of books. Going down the list, she found one book that was held at Harvard University Library, and within minutes was actually reading the book online. Well, soon we came in uh, looking for uh, an album, a record album, vinyl record album, First Parents, and um, all, all I had was a lyric, which I typed into Google, uh, and looking down about the third hit gave me the results that I was looking for. It was the name of the album, which was Farewell to Alda Baron, and I gave it to him, and he went out and got it on eBay, and they were just... They were tickled pink. One time a site checker was looking for a trial court filing from the state of Alaska. They'd used some traditional print and online databases to search for this thing for hours, and they couldn't find it. So she shot me an email, and luckily, using Google, I was able to find it in less than five minutes. But I waited about 20 minutes or so before I emailed the student back, so they would think it was much more difficult than it actually was. And she wrote back to me, thanks, Joy, you rock. <laughs> and my job doesn't get much better than that. I can't imagine research life without Google. All right, thank you, Laura. Um, would somebody hit the lights again? Thanks, Chris. So, Anne, tell us about tell us about open courseware, and let me tell you what I'm interested in. MIT Open Courseware uh, clearly took a flag in the field of universities and openness. And it seems from a distance such a wonderful idea in so many ways that I would have expected other universities to follow right along in the wake. Tell us about it with that question somewhere in the back of your mind. Okay, great. Uh, how many know what MIT OpenCourseWare is? You've heard of it? How many have been to the site? Great, excellent. So um, I'll tell you a little bit of background about uh, what MIT OpenCourseWare is, how the idea came about, why MIT is doing it, and then I'll talk about the reaction we're, we're um, getting around the world and specifically from other universities. So uh, MIT OpenCourseWare was announced in 2001. That was at the height of the dot-com era. So at that time, it was a little bit counterintuitive when MIT announced that it was going to give away all of the educational materials that are used in the MIT curriculum. The idea came from an MIT faculty committee, and they had for a year been meeting about how the Internet can impact education 
and what MIT should do about it. And they honestly thought at the end of their studying this, they were going to come out with an MIT.com. They really thought that where they were headed was toward an online education program that MIT would offer. But instead, this faculty committee focused on MIT's core mission, which is to advance education and to serve the world. And when they focused on that mission, they decided that the best way that they could take advantage of the vast power of the internet and best advance education around the world would be to give away the materials that MIT uses. So since that was announced in 2001, we have been working on publishing all of the courses that are taught at MIT. We now have 1,550 of MIT's 1,800 courses published on our site. So it's a very large, very deep, uh, deep resource for um, educators and learners all over the world. I should say that it's voluntary. The MIT faculty don't have to participate if they don't want to, but as of today, we have over 80% of the MIT faculty are voluntarily participating. It has been overwhelmingly positively received around the world. We now get on our site about 1.2 million visits every month. We survey those users once a year. We know that the visitors uh, to our site, about half of them are self-learners, unbelievably motivated self-learners. That really surprised us because our target audience for this publication was educators. About 30% of our users are students who are enrolled in a program somewhere, and they use these materials to help them with their, with their studies. And about 15% now are educators all over the world. About 40% of our users are here in the United States. About 60% are international. So it's uh, very, very broadly used. Uh, the growth is about 30% a year. Uh, we don't do any marketing or, or uh, advertising of the site. So there's just organic growth in our traffic of about 30% a year. So what about other universities? You know, we have this huge fan club all over the world. People are um, thrilled that they have access to quality educational materials. Uh, just as Sid was describing, or Professor Verba, uh, people write to us by the thousands and tell us that they never dreamt that they would have access to these types of materials. And they tell us in very heartfelt ways about how it's actually changing their lives and how they're using this information to improve their lives. So uh, when our president at the time, Chuck Vest, would talk about it, he would say one of the things MIT was trying to do was democratize education, to unlock knowledge, and to make knowledge available as a public good. So MIT truly had very lofty goals in pursuing this. And the hope was always that if MIT did this, then others would follow. So the ultimate vision that our faculty and our president had five years ago is that universities would be working together to build a collective body of high-quality educational materials that would be open and available to all. We didn't think it would happen overnight. Um, we actually, it's actually happening faster than we thought it would. We thought we'd be pretty heads down just trying to get our materials up. Uh, but in fact, there are now about uh, 100 universities around the world 
who are developing their own open courseware sites. What is surprising to us, and we really haven't figured out the reason for this, but what's most surprising is that most of these universities are international. So the top universities in China, the top universities in Japan, many universities from um, across Europe have developed their own uh, groups of uh, open courseware sites. And just recently we have formed an open courseware consortium to bring all of these sites together through an open courseware consortium portal. There are about a handful of schools in the U.S. who are developing open coursewares or who have uh, opened them up. Uh, the U.S. schools include uh, Tufts University, Johns Hopkins, which reminded me of the material that some of the material that you described said they're, they're a school of public health. They have a beautiful site because they feel a moral imperative to share the knowledge that they have about pu public health beyond the relatively small numbers of people who can come to their campus to get degrees in public health. Uh, Notre Dame has just launched a site, uh, Utah State University, which is one of the leaders in water resources and irrigation. Uh, University of Michigan is working on one. Um, Michigan State and Yale University just announced uh, that they're going to be publishing an open courseware site with uh, video. So it's just now starting to pick up in the United States, but this has been relatively recent that U.S. schools are following suit. That puts just a question on the table. Let's, mm -hmm. let's save it for a moment, but it's right there. Great. Stuart. Thank you. So um, uh, as uh, Professor Nesson mentioned, I'm uh, chairing a, a committee that the provost has set up to look at issues in uh, – scholarly communication, not open access per se, uh, but uh, a lot of what we're interested in has to do with open access. Um, and in general, I'm interested in um, the uh, issue of the mechanisms by which uh, uh, researchers and scholars communicate with each other. It's safe to say uh, that if you were to uh, design such mechanisms now from scratch, you wouldn't end up with the system that we're currently uh, seeing. Uh, the main method by which scholars communicate with each other is through uh, articles describing their research, and these are uh, typically uh, uh, written, reviewed, edited uh, by other faculty members and, and scholars, and then published in journals uh, uh, once they've been accepted for publication and distributed through one or another means. Uh, typically subscribed to by the research libraries of the world and then uh, used by uh, other scholars to further the research enterprise. Now, um, what's perhaps surprising in, that, uh, uh, in, the, in the current mechanism is that the subscription costs for these journals uh, can be quite high, uh, up to tens of thousands of dollars per journal per year for a library, for a single journal. And so you might wonder why this would be if uh, uh, it turns out that the faculty and scholars who are writing the material aren't getting compensated at all for this. So one thing it tells you is that people don't go into academia for the money. I hope if any of you are planning on becoming professors, you're not thinking it's because you're going to make a lot of money selling your articles. You won't. You do it because it's part of the enterprise that all of the speakers have been talking about, part of the 
the, the underlying uh, premise of a university is the distribution of knowledge, and we do it for that for that reason. Uh, nonetheless, the publishers are um, are uh, selling the journals at great expense to the libraries, to and be, to be used by exactly those people who are then uh, who, who are the the producers of the material uh, themselves. So there, uh, there's a natural question arises: um, Is this the optimal system for doing this kind of communication? And it seems pretty clear that the answer is is no. There's a middleman here that seems like uh, could be easily removed from the loop. And when you remove the middleman from the loop, you end up with a system that's referred to as open access, uh, open access publishing. So uh, in uh, an open access journal, the same system is used up to the point uh, that access occurs. The same a system for writing, editing, reviewing, and so forth. But um, articles are then uh, made available for free without a subscription cost and distributed uh, over the internet has the nice property that uh, distribution can occur at essentially zero marginal cost. So that's open access publishing. And if you were to design a, design a system from scratch, I think it's pretty clear and relatively uncontroversial that you'd, you'd want to set up something more like that than our traditional system. But that's not the system that we have in place. And there is a big question uh, as to whether uh, it's possible to move from the current infrastructure we have now to an infrastructure we might prefer, how exactly we can get from here to there. And that's an open question, and various people have made uh, all kinds of proposals uh, to see how to do that. And uh, that's one of the main topics that the, uh, this uh, committee is currently looking at. What can Harvard do as an institution to promote this movement from the closed access world that we find ourselves in now to an open access world where um, these... Uh, scholarly materials are freely available. Uh, I'll just mention a few of the kinds of things that we're entertaining uh, as, as possibilities. Of course, nothing uh, has been um, uh, cast in stone. We're, we're looking around for, for possibilities. An obvious thing to do, uh, first of all, is just to uh, educate and, uh, the faculty and exhort the faculty to act in ways that uh, promotes this open access by uh, uh, taking advantage of open access journals, founding open access journals, uh, refraining from uh, volunteering their labor to at least the most egregious uh, cases of closed access journals, uh, and so forth. Uh, that would certainly be a, a good idea. Many people propose self-archiving, that is, unilaterally making their articles available uh, on their own web pages or on an institutional repository in open access. That would be a good thing. It requires that you retain certain rights in order to legally do this uh, 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 so as not to be in violation of, of uh, copyright that you might otherwise assign to the publishing journal. And uh, that can be problematic, first of all, because it requires an individual act on every article to retain the rights, and second of all, because there's the worry, not particularly well-founded, but a bit of a worry that publishers might uh, push back and refuse to grant you these rights. As it turns out, uh, the vast, vast majority of uh, journals are already running under a, a copyright regime where their authors uh, are allowed to, to make their uh, uh, articles available uh, in this kind of self-archived open access. But there is a worry that, that uh, journals might, might push back or start pushing back. So one of the things, uh, ideas that we've been entertaining uh, and are working on in this committee is the idea of uh, having an automatic license so that 
individual authors for individual articles don't need to uh, make sure they retain these rights, that these rights to make their articles available in open access, say, on their web page or an institutional repository, are automatically granted when copyright vests in the article to an appropriate institution. In the case of, uh, say, uh, faculty at the Harvard Law School or faculty at the Harvard uh, Faculty of Arts and Sciences, that institution would be uh, the university, Harvard University. So one of the ideas that we're entertaining is this automatic license for faculty uh, to grant uh, uh, a non-exclusive distribution right to the university. This would require uh, policy change in whatever the pertinent school is, and that's one of the things we're looking into now. There are, ma there are many other ideas that have been entertained. I won't go through all of them. But the general principle is the same, that we're trying to uh, find a way to move from the current system in which we find ourselves which uh, is uh, non-optimal both from the point of view of the openness of the information and the economics of the situation. Uh, Sid Verba uh, can tell you stories about uh, the uh, results of the market failure that the serials journal situation uh, leaves us in. So first of all, in openness and second of all, in the, in the economics, we're trying to come up with a preferable system and move to a system where open access is possible and becomes widespread. All right, so now the challenge turns to you. You've heard each of these folks talk about what they're up to. You, I hope, see some connections among them, <coughs> ways in which, <clears throat> in some way, they're all after the same goal. But the challenge here is empathic argument. And so I call on you to question them from the viewpoint of the opposition, the reasoned, rational, but perhaps deeply frightened, deeply skeptical, deeply cynical opposition. Tell us who you are. Okay, I'm Kevin Parker, and what else? Really yeah, what else do you want? No, who oh, who I am now? Yeah, oh, um, I, I, I am who I am. Actually, I, I, I'm someone that sort of I, I, I'm skeptical about sort of the efficacy of of the whole system, and it it sort of sounds really nice and ideal. Um, and I'll sort of focus on the uh, on sort of on sort of the the, the print library archival project first, and. <laughs> You know, libraries have all these sort of somewhat archaic but relatively organized manner in which they store all their materials that's accessible to someone that sort of knows their way around the physical location. And, and I'm sure this is somehow Google's role in this, though, is that you digitize all this information and you have it all there, but until there's really an efficient way of sorting through what has what was originally a small amount of information that's now a extremely immense amount of information to actually find what it is you're looking for um, the project is nice and I guess for archival purposes somebody will dig through it eventually but to really make it useful to the end user there has to be some good way of sort of separating the wheat from the chaff and all those kinds of metaphors when you've got and it, hold on. Are you, are you actually opposed to this for some well, reason, I, or are you I, just I, saying it's not worth all the trouble? Well, well right. Well, I mean, the, the opposition there is that it's, it's an, it's an inef if there's no way to sort of 
You mean it's just, it not, it's just not efficient it. enough for well, you? Well, it, it's a waste of resources that would better be spent somewhere else then. If, uh, if, if, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let me talk to the, the whole issue of finding things. Well, hold on, Sid. Grab a mic. <laughs> Let me talk to the whole issue of finding things because that's one of the big benefits may be weaknesses in the project. I mean, in the old days when you wanted to study a particular topic, one of the problems was that there wouldn't be enough information. Now we all know that when you go on to Google or even if you go to the Harvard Library, there's too much information. I mean, you get a, hundred, a million hits, where do, you, where do you go from there? Uh, <clears throat> so there are two sides of the story. There's one, uh, the romantic side, which I deeply believe in, but it no longer works, is what is known to everybody in this room is browsing. You go to a library and you're looking for a book on a particular topic and the books next to it are on the same topic and you walk up and down and you take one off the shelf and you look through it and lots of us have done that all the time. That's a wonderful way of doing things. It's cumbersome because a building like Widener has three and a half million volumes in it, but nevertheless, they're sort of organized. The reason that doesn't work anymore is one, because there are too many volumes out there. Secondly, the Harvard Library has five million volumes in remote storage because there's no physical room on campus and those are not browsable. So you have lots of books that otherwise could, in a way, be lost and forgotten because they're not at your fingertips. Secondly, <clears throat> the Harvard Library is famous for being all over the place. It's got 93 libraries. Uh, it's got some really big ones like the Law School Library and Widener and all those sorts of things. And you might be looking for a book on a particular topic which might be on the history of a particular lawyer that might be in Widener, it might be here, you wouldn't know where it is. Uh, so the value of the Google project and the fact that you can search across all these volumes allows you often to find books that you would never know existed. And therefore, it is efficient in that it takes a huge resource that we have paid lots of money for and stored and makes it suddenly alive again. The big problem that I think is going to be facing librarians, computer scientists who work on this, is how do you take uh, huge amounts of information and somehow or other develop new ways of searching for it? You look for a book, uh, you want to write a paper, God forbid you want to write a paper on Napoleon, and you look for volumes that mention Napoleon, you will get 200,000. How do you search those? And I think what will happen, there will be more and more techniques of using strings of words, of using all sorts of ways in which we all search now when we're trying to find something, uh, that it's going to become more and more systematized. And so I think it's going to increase uh, the likelihood that you can find what you want. So I think, in fact, it's probably worth it given the fact that the books exist and you want to get access to them. All right. So we've got um, one objection coming from someone who thinks we could spend the money better. Right? Uh, I'm... Uh, I'm, I'm reaching for more principled objections. And I, so, for example, with Laura's film, Laura's film was a cell document. It was telling you why it was a good idea. But you know that that was a cell document. You know that was a product of corporate America doing the thing it does, putting out a video that has big heads talking down to you, telling you how wonderful it's going to be if you do whatever they do. And bang, you know, it's like that's what it is. 
But you're on the other side of this. You're the, you're, you're the person who feels they're out to manipulate you somehow. Talk to them. Juanita. Uh, hi, I'm a Colombian journalist, and I wrote a book, and I spent like a lot of time reporting and writing the book. And I didn't expect to make money, right? But my, but my publishing house expected to make some money to invest in the book. So I'm afraid that if you publish it in Google, you make all the money with the ads, and then my publishing house doesn't make any money, so there will be like a disincentive for them to publish books like mine that are not going to be like a big bestseller, but... And my market would be like the academic market. So, well, I tell you what. Instead of just going back and forth here, let's keep going with you. I want to hear voices so that this group here kind of hears what is out there. So, Juanita, pass the mic. Who are you? Um, I guess. I'm a student at a school who maybe is thinking about opening their courses to the public. And I guess one of the things that I question is um, all of us pay a lot of money to be at school here and taking these courses. And so all of our money, well, not all of our money, is going to sustaining the resources. Some of it is going to professors so that they'll teach and do research and continue to teach us. And then what incentive do we have to continue paying for the same education that other people can receive for free? It seems like our money is almost subsidizing their education for free. Well, at the same time, I think sharing of information is important and everyone should have access to it. It kind of makes us feel that, okay, we're paying for this. So if, they can, if we can get it for free and don't come here, then there's not going to be money to sustain the system. Or does it become the argument then that what we're really coming here for is we're paying for a piece of paper so that we can get into some other market and make money at big law firms or something? So you're, you're kind of feeling like all this money you're putting out for tuition and somebody else can get it for free, and uh, why are you putting it out? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, so pass back. I would actually take that argument even a step further, which is to say not only are we paying a lot of money either through resources or through loans or something like that, but we've also earned a space here, right? We've worked, all of us have worked very, very hard over the course of our lives and coming to Harvard Law School for a lot of people is the culmination of, you know, at least 22 and possibly a lot more years of work. And we've been working that way very, very hard for a very long time to get here, to have the opportunity to get that piece of paper, perhaps. And now, all of a sudden, anyone who, you know, smoked pot through all of college, I I know we've had previous (laughs) volunteers. Some people even smoked all the way through law school. (laughs) And beyond. And have been smoking it ever since. (laughs) But people who perhaps were not as diligent or at least couldn't manage their... (laughs) Their, their proclivities in a way that allowed them to still be as productive. No, um, we didn't inhale. <laughs> are people who, who didn't do the things that we do still have access now to the same things that we have? And obviously that's imperfect, and obviously that's not exactly true for every single person. But, you know, I sat in my first year class and was amazed at how incredibly smart every single person in the room was. And 
And you were one of them. And I was one of them, and it felt good. But also, it felt like we were part of a club, and we deserved that. And I don't feel... And this is me sort of playing a character a little bit, but I don't think it's fair. I really want to emphasize that. Come on, that. Art, step up to it. Step up to it. I don't think it's fair for anybody to be able to just step into that because, you know, and, and because our money is paying for it, because we think it would be nice. For some, some professors who have already gotten there right, think it would get, be we nice. We've got to pass the mic. Um, I, I guess I'm speaking as someone who, who likes the idea of open access and open courseware, but who is sort of uh, embittered after long, hard years of facing the harsh realities of the world and, and the way things work. Um, I guess even if you like the idea, the fact of the matter is it seems like all of these things, open access, the Google Book Project, um, they, they all seem to involve a sort of idealistic group of people who want to share knowledge with the world and then a sort of group of money-driven, venal individuals who have all the power and who want things to stay that way. Um, and I wonder if those people are going to be convinced by rhetoric about the benefits of, of openness. And so short of like a government mandate or something, how are we going to convince the people who are making money off of the status quo to change the status uh, quo? Wait a minute, Jason. Hold on one sec. You paint a kind of a comic book world in which there's good and evil. And you're asking the question, how will good ever persuade the folks at the heart of evil? Well, I think, I think sometimes black and white exists, and it doesn't necessarily mean good and evil. Sometimes it just means interests which are in direct conflict with one another. And I think that this may be one of those instances. And there may be a way to change that scenario, but I'd, I'd be interested in hearing what such a way is. Pass the mic. Well, I would... Who uh, are you, Aaron? Oh, I'm someone who believes in uh, the freedom of information and is uh, you know, very concerned about a single private company having control over vast volumes of information of people you know, who own you know, information privately, giving it to another private organization that's existing for profit. And you know, while they say their mission on one hand is to organize and distribute information, they're you know, their bigger mission is to make money, as is the case with all private companies. And I don't, I have uh, some serious misgivings about treating them like a public interest charity and of other public interest charity type projects like university doing the same thing. Pass back. All right, I'll speak about objections sort of, um, I guess I'm, I'm talking kind of like a professor or librarian actually at the moment. Um, who's worried that the kinds of, I'm thinking particularly about, about making so much stuff searchable, sounds like a great idea, more access to everything. Um, and I, I think what I'd say is, you know, when I was learning how to research and how to write and stuff, research meant going and spending a long time and reading a lot of books, and you read stuff that wasn't necessarily exactly on point because you didn't know. And, you know, you learned a lot in that process. And now students think research means get the right five words in your search string and you'll pop up the thing that you want. And I think that you know, having access to lots of information is great, but, that may, but making it really simple like that, mechanizing it, actually seem, can be detrimental to sort of the educational process of learning how to think and, and work through tough stuff. All right, so now we've had a pretty good dose here. And uh, Laura, I want you to pass the microphone down to Stuart. And what I'm thinking is I want to just go right down the line, react to what you've heard. Speak to these people empathically, reach them, move them. 
So I, I was actually gratified by uh, the general characterization that I heard uh, that people think that um, open availability of information is a good thing and those who oppose it therefore are evil. I think that's a pretty uh, reasonable point of view myself. And so uh, I'm pretty much in, in tune with you all. Um, there are some worries about various of these uh, efforts that are attempting to, 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 to promote the general idea of open access to these various kinds of information, whether they're scholarly articles, uh, uh, educational course materials, uh, or um, uh, books in print or otherwise. Um, and the arguments uh, aren't the same for or against each of these. Uh, and I note that uh, many of the, 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 the arguments that have been expressed against the idea of these scholarly materials being available open access are few and far between. I counted a total of zero of them, I think. Did I get the count right? Maybe somebody heard one. All in favor of openness of scholarly work? More, more importantly, all opposed. All opposed. Okay, I, I'll just stop talking then. Oh, was there one? He's ready, he's ready to take a shot at it. Okay. Here we go. Yeah. Go ahead, give it a shot, Josh. It's you against all... Me, me, is, me is me. I'm all for you know, the openness of scholarly materials, but just in terms of finding an argument against it... Um, Taking the role of the evil person. Yes, yes. Yeah, so, who doesn't consider himself evil, but who you know, is... Um, so uh, I guess the argument would be that part of the function of the scholarly community, if I'm considering myself a professor here, is that we take the raw knowledge and we refine it over time because the public, the untutored public out there is a lot of times not ready for um, the kind of scholarly material, or the kind of scientific material that we generate until we've had time to do more research, to filter out things that, that aren't right, and to come up with more reasonable conclusions. So an example is um, someone does a study on sort of um, the biology of the human brain and how it developed over time. And then you get this magazine article that says, men can't be faithful because their brains are set up this way, so it's not our fault, so let all men cheat. And so you want some stratum of scholars to be filtering this stuff and working it through over time. And with this open stuff, as soon as a scholar has a thought, he puts it out there, and then you've got some blurb with the authority of Professor X of Harvard University for some outrageous claim. So you need some time for, for scholars to refine the material. All right. <clears throat> Let's just keep right on going. Anne Margulies. Wait a minute. Becca had her hand up over here. She's always, always worth it. Thanks, Dad. Um, I, I had another shot at this, what's wrong with the open access for, to scholarly journals. Um, so one of the things that people comment about when they make the choice to go out of academia into industry and then they don't like it is that they discover that at their company where they work or maybe even at their law firm or something, they no longer have unrestricted access to the things they had access to at school, like LexisNexis, for instance. Suddenly you're being clocked when you're doing all of your research. Um, and it seems to me that, um, first of all, that's just a basic advantage for academia and keeping some of those people who actually care about doing that stuff in academia and not out there in industry. And secondly, that it's an, one of the things that 
helps academia continue to be competitive with industry in terms of its development is that all of their materials are closed to us and our materials are closed to them. But when our materials are all open to them and their materials are still closed to us, we potentially end up in the situation where as academics we're just behind the industry research. All right, pass to Anne. I guess I'd like to address the students who uh, were concerned that perhaps their hard-earned degrees were being devalued by sharing the materials openly with others. And this actually was a common sentiment at MIT. Uh, many MIT students were very upset and concerned about what OpenCourseWare was going to be, as well as MIT alumni. When it was announced, it, when it was announced they hated the idea because they had worked very, very hard to get their MIT brass rats. What became very clear to them in a very short period of time when they saw what was actually being published is that the materials published on OpenCourseWare are just the raw materials that are used for education. It is nowhere close to what someone gets when they get an MIT education. When you get an MIT education, and of course it's the same at, at other universities, What's extraordinary about going to MIT is that you get to be with other MIT students. And that's where you learn so much, interacting with students. You get to be, uh, interact with uh, MIT faculty. That's not included in MIT OpenCourseWare. You get exposed to and you become part of the vast research that happens on campus. So in no way is what a self-learner can do through OpenCourseWare truly the same as what you go to MIT for to get a degree. Then we started hearing a very, very different tune from both MIT students and MIT faculty. It took a very short period of time, but all of a sudden we noticed in addition to all this traffic we were getting from all over the world, enormous traffic from MIT. MIT OpenCourseWare is used by last survey, 85% of the MIT student body, and they've all said that it's had a positive to extremely positive impact on their MIT education. Think about when you are alums of the Harvard Law School. The MIT alums say that MIT OpenCourseWare has allowed them to stay current in the fields that they studied at MIT. It allows them to stay connected with what they majored in, it allows them to take courses or, each, or at least explore courses that they didn't have time to take in those precious years when they were on campus. So it's really, although um, there are vast resources that are the same, I mean, the, the materials that we offer openly to the world are exactly the same materials that are used at MIT for its education. It is not the same as getting an MIT degree. All right, yes, we have a little break with a tape change. Just a moment. Say when, Tim. When? Give another clap back. All right, Laura, you're up. Okay, so I heard about three questions um, from the students about most pointedly at Google. Um, so in the back, the question you had about research and librarians and kind of what's the role of, of research in the future. I think 
in the beginning, this is one of the things we didn't realize we were kind of getting getting tangled into, which is that librarians had a deep fear that book search would kind of, you know, do away with the need for librarians and the need for teaching about how to do research into the future. And the truth is, is we view librarians and the um, the culture and sort of concept of librarianship as being very much complementary to book search as opposed to us superseding it in any way. And for a lot of the reasons that you're identifying, I mean, there's a wealth of information out there now. How do you discern whether a book is the right book for you or another book is the right book for you? How do you you know, determine which source is the right thing on the web, or do you want a serial instead of a book? And how do you think about all these research questions? I think there's increasingly a role, or the role is switching for, changing a little bit for librarians. They need to be a little bit more IT savvy, but there's always going to be a role for people who understand research, what quality research is, and how to teach that research experience to inexperienced students, essentially. Laura, could I push you a little bit on that? Sure. Just speaking from my perspective as a student um, for the last, the entirety of my life, um, <laughs> I, it, it, I, I, I've stopped talking to librarians. I don't go and ask librarians for help anymore, and I go to the library much less than I used to, and that's because I'm on Google just doing it for myself. So I don't know, you know, maybe the librarians have a role, but they seem to have less of one. Maybe that's just because you're so information savvy, though. There are plenty of people out there who don't know what a Boolean search is and how to conduct it and who need... You know, think about the first time you ever used LexisNexis. You didn't really know how to use it. You needed someone to teach you. And I think going forward, that will be the same thing with more and more of the complicated, complex, deep archives that are available, You know, whether it's OpenCourseWare or BookSearch. Um, people will need to understand how to use them at an expert level rather than just kind of the beginner neophyte level. I mean, maybe your papers would be better if you had help. I don't know. <laughs> Certainly true. <laughs> All right. Should we pass to Sid? Well, I wanted to talk about, um, I think it was your question, but you can, you'll probably address it the same way. Which one? The question about... Um, Google, it's a private enterprise. Yeah. Google, yes, Google's a very private enterprise. Uh, it's got this... Uh, She's going to love me when I say this. It's got this philosophy of do no evil, and I believe that they deeply believe that it does no evil as long as it isn't too costly. Uh, you don't want to lose business. Anyway, I take it back. I mean, Google is a wonderful, very one of the most interesting institutions I ever worked with. My hair was dark brown before I started working with them. Uh, no, they're wonderful. They are some of the most talented people I know uh, they also are tough as nails at the same time, but that's perfectly okay. Uh, let me just say a bit about that. Uh, a lot of people have raised the issue, uh, which I think is a perfectly reasonable thing to raise, of isn't this, if you're talking about such a public good, as I was talking about, to aid education across the country, et cetera, et cetera, shouldn't this be done by the government? And if not done by the government, shouldn't it be done by a consortium of private uh, foundations? that wouldn't be interested in whether they could sell advertising on the side. Uh, to tell the truth, I'm an old social democrat. I think it should be done by the government. I think there are other things that the government should do even before they digitize all the books, like provide universal medical care. Just hold your breath until they do any of those things. So the, you can make an argument that maybe this is something the government should be doing as a public service. The government is not. Uh, I know for a fact that a number of the major foundations in the country, when they heard about the Google project, 
uh, came together and said, why don't we put up a lot of money and do it so it isn't commercialized, taken out of the free access of people. Uh, and in fact, they decided they didn't have that much money and they didn't have that as their highest priority. So from some perspective, Google is the only game in town and it is doing something that no one else has stepped up to the plate to do. And let me take back that first statement about they say do no evil unless we can make some money out of it. Uh, Google has been quite remarkably responsive to such things as this button, find it in the library. Uh, people go to the library and they don't give Google any advertising revenue. And I think there was some concern in Google that if we let people go to the library, why would the publishers uh, advertise with us? They have done it nevertheless, and I think they haven't lost any money that way. And they have allowed free public, free public printing and so forth. So indeed, it does, in fact, produce a public service. The fact that they make money by selling advertising is not the reason why the Harvard Library is cooperating with them. It does fit within that great American ideal uh, of the early Puritans, you know, who came to the United States, came to America to do good and they did well. Uh, the fact that you can do both at the same time is not necessarily a bad thing. So, so Sid, talk to me. Where do you feel the making money at your expense? I don't. I mean, I don't think they're making money at our expense. Sure, there were ways in which we had things we wanted done this way and they had things they wanted done that way, uh, and they were very concerned with their business model, which was perfectly legitimate. But we surely, from a perspective that is not we want to make money, that's what libraries have never done, uh, our perspective is we want to perform a service for scholarship, for people in general, uh, and so forth, and we wait, have... Wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. <clears throat> I want you to assume that you're dealing with an American for-profit corporation. We are. Whose mission is to make money for its shareholders. Mm -hmm. It's publicly traded. Everything that we study in law school will say that they have a fiduciary obligation to make money for their shareholders. So there they are, hand in glove with Harvard University, wanting to copy whatever you've got, and they're in it for the money. Where do you see them making the money? They obviously, I think Laura could speak to this, they seem to do a good job. It's their, that's their business, in a way, to decide whether they're making money out of the library project. I've never been totally convinced that it was the most lucrative of the projects that they do, but that's their business. As I understand it, their business is to get people to go to Google and when they go to Google for their own purposes, whether it's to get a map to drive to the next town or whatever it is, they also will be exposed to these ads. And therefore, the more eyes they get on the Google site, the better off they are. We have gone out of our way to make sure that advertisements do not appear on requests made from a Harvard website. We thought it was inappropriate for our students to be sitting in the library, put in a request for a book, uh, and find an ad for something. Uh, and so we have closed that part off because we are concerned with the uh, uh, overlap. We have uh, both sides have a clear understanding of the inappropriateness of Google using Harvard's name in its advertising uh, and we using Google's name in, in certain ways. So we're trying to keep uh, ourselves pure in a certain way, uh, probably 
we are not completely pure, but... Uh, Harvard not completely pure? Oh, I remember there's a wonderful song by Brecht and Weil from the Three Penny Opera, which begins with the wonderful line, I could do it in German, it sounds even better, but it's, I used to believe in the days I was pure, and I was pure, like you used to be. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Laura. Can I, can I just mention so, one? Oh, yeah. Um, this worry that, that the, the Google project is handing over something to Google may be um, based on a, what, what I take to be a misunderstanding, and maybe, Laura, you can address this, which is that the arrangement between Harvard and Google is not an exclusive arrangement. So nothing prevents some other company or governmental institution or consortium of nonprofits from doing similar things in different ways that you like better. Or, or right. We also get a copy get a copy files, which we could not afford to make by ourselves say that again can, on mic can you we also get a copy of the digitized files which we can then use for all sorts of research purposes make available to our students and so forth so if google tomorrow went out of business and decided they didn't want to do this anymore or the files were not making enough money and they decided to uh, destroy them we would have them can i talk to a couple of other can I just ask one quick sure. question? Just, is, is Google free to change this to a subscription service if they want to? Yes, but then we are free to make it available freely if we want to. So in other words, uh, we have a file that we wouldn't have had before. Uh, if they do that, we might you know, get together with other universities and try to do it on our own. So that's holding them back. Before you go to another question, just pass it to Laura. I want to just ask you, Laura. Sure. Speak to us from the for-profit corporation's perspective oh. without any PR, just the moneymaker. You're, now you're talking to the, the boys on Wall Street. And the question is, what are you getting for your money from Harvard? What we're getting and what our users are getting is really how we think about it is access to an amazing set of resources that will keep people coming back to Google because, which is, the long, the long run is we would love Google to be a place where anyone who's looking for information, <coughs> excuse me, will default to coming to Google. And as there are more and more organizations out there trying to bring offline information into the online sphere, this is really, you know, this is kind of where a lot of the new play in the Internet is. By us doing books and making it not just web pages, but books and serials and video and all the other things that we are working on right now, being searchable and findable through Google, we believe that people will want to keep coming back from Google. We want people to coming back, keep coming back to Google. Um, that's sort of, you know, the main the main focus of our business is making sure users can find what they want through our website. So book search is a big component of that. I did want to make sure that um, we covered off on the issues you brought up about us being a corporation with only the only copy of anything. Sid talked about it a little. Um, the contracts are not exclusive that we have with libraries. We have multiple library partners. The library partners get a copy back. They get a hosted version of the books that they, Sid mentioned this as well, we host a version of the books that um, there's a shell of the Harvard Library website around it. Um, each library has um, different but related distribution terms that they can share a portion of the files that they get back with other entities, other universities, other nonprofits. Um, 
you know, and I think that with the fact that we're allowing people to do downloads, it's, it's not about exclusivity for us. It's more about getting the information available and out there. And I think, you know, some of the stuff that's copyrighted, we need to be a little bit more careful about for obvious reasons. But public domain stuff, I mean, anybody else could copy it and make it available. There's a million book project. There's Project Gutenberg. There are a lot of people out there making it freely available. And um, we don't really see a point in kind of locking up the public domain stuff forever and anon. It's, it's, it's going to be out there anyway. So, you know, your argument is separate for stuff that's in copyright. And I think there are a lot of reasons why everyone is much more careful about the in copyright stuff. Um, but... The public domain stuff is, you know, while not free for grabs, it's it's pretty widely available and not locked up. Sid, you wanted to. Uh, I wanted to talk about the first questions that were raised. Uh, I was a little bit chilled by them because I knew when I came to the law school, I wasn't coming to the Ed School or the Divinity School, but I had the feeling when the questions started coming that I'd come to the Business School. Uh, <laughs> There was this concern, you know, I'm paying all this tuition, why should these people get uh, a free ride? Sid, are you guilt-tripping my students? Of course I am. <laughs> I wanted to ask this student, do you believe uh, in the university's financial aid program where your tuition, let's assume you are paying full boat, your tuition probably goes up because a high proportion of students in Harvard College, I don't know about the law school, you know, get free tuition. Uh, and... Uh, I think that, you know, some people deserve tuition, and a lot of that then is based on merit for them also. I mean, they went through a bunch of examinations and things versus you're saying, here you have the general public that maybe has availability to it. But another thing to I think that I wanted to say to my question was the fact that what you're doing here is when you're putting these materials across, you're putting raw materials, like you're saying, if they're raw materials that are now free, before, when we were paying for our, our tuition, let's say that those raw materials weren't free. So we were paying a certain amount for our tuitions for those raw materials, plus the added bonus of being able to sit in the classroom, of being able to interact with students, and you know, certain things like that. Now if we're saying, well, that's available for free to everyone else, why isn't that available free to us as well? And that lowers our tuition. The next thing me, you know, they're going to start giving away free food. That, that would just be... Let, let, me, let me talk about the room and board. They might as well get into the business of housing everyone. Why not? Let me talk about the... And charge you for tuition and give it to free to them. <laughs> let me talk about the two other outrageously elitist views that came across here. Uh, one was, uh, you've just echoed it and somebody else echoed it. You're going to give these books to all sorts of people who shouldn't be reading them? They're not qualified so to read? Think about the public library, which is the great institution, I think, of American democracy. Are we, do we want to close the public libraries or give them an SAT before they can go in there? We are just making, as libraries do, information available for anyone who wants it with our maybe idealistic view that they will use it for good purposes, they may use it for bad purposes, as people can read books and learn how to commit crimes, I suppose. But basically, I think we in this profession believe that the more you can give people knowledge, uh, the better off the society is. And therefore, that we make these books available makes us like a public library, which I think is a good thing. The yes. other one, which I was really, let me just finish this last one. The other one, which I was really surprised didn't come up in the Harvard faculty, uh, goes like this. Harvard does have a monopoly over certain kinds of literature. It's in our libraries, and no one else has got that collection. And not only does that give people, let's say, Harvard has the world's greatest collection of Slavic literature anywhere. Uh, 
And that makes Harvard a richer place, not only because of the books and people can use them, but if the dean wants to hire someone to become a professor of Russian, Russian novels, he can argue that person should come to Harvard because there they will have access to a fantastic collection that you can't get anywhere else. And I thought I would get a lot of uh, pushback from the faculty saying, why are you giving that away? Now anybody can get these things. Why would they want to come to Harvard? I have not heard one faculty member raise that argument. And the main reason is their business is studying Slavic literature because they think it's wonderful and people should be reading it. And therefore, for the same reason they write books and don't make money out of those books, because they think what they're doing is the most important thing in the world and they want people to know about Dostoevsky and read him, they like the project, that people are reading it all over the world. And so there isn't that, and that's part of the university's mission, that we're here to educate you guys, but we're here also to create knowledge that everybody should get. So I could go on like this, but... Uh, As the student who espoused the elitist um, argument, I, I mean, I think... Uh, you were doing well. You were doing very well. Really? I found that to be remarkably non-empathic. Um, which, is, which is fine, which is fair. But I, I, think the, I think the distinction between the public library and the Harvard library is a false one because the public library is supported by taxes that everybody pays. Whereas, you know, I don't, I mean, I guess you could argue for tax exemptions, but the Harvard library is supported by primarily tuition and donations from alumni, right? So we're, you know, I, th I think there's a difference in, in where the payment and where the resources to maintain the Harvard library come from. Why and, should that make a difference, Art? Well, only because... Why is that a distinction with a difference? The distinction is, the distinction, I guess that's, that's an argumentative point. It's not an empathic point. I feel like the point that was made about the public library doesn't address, it, it sort of minimizes the concern that this student is expressing, which is still, I've worked really, really hard to get something of value, right? Something that's been of personal value to me, something that will one day be of value to me, of, of monetary value on the marketplace. And I found a way to distinguish myself from the hordes of would-be lawyers out there. And so you're starting with scholarly resources and making them available to everyone. The next step, of course, is that elite Harvard professors are putting their classes up on the internet, and then anybody can go and participate in those classes, right? And from that point, I mean, so you can say right now that the value of a Harvard degree isn't going to suffer and that there's still something that's really, 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 you know, the real thing about being a Harvard Law student is getting to interact with all of these students, that that's the real difference. But I could see that as being the start of a slippery, of a slippery slope to somewhere that later on degrades what I have. And I could also say, for you who are in the faculty, well, that's a very easy thing for you to say, having already gone through this system and reaped the benefits. But here I am as a 3L trying to figure out what I'm going to do, and I'm worried that in 10 years, my law degree isn't going to be any more valuable than someone in Iceland who followed all my classes online. So I was worried when Ann Margulies was speaking about how open courseware wasn't really so threatening once you got to realize that the actual experience of being at MIT was so rich compared to just what you can get through open courseware. Because here we are embarked on an enterprise of seeing just how rich we could make the remote experience. And the more we master the tools, the less that difference is going to be there. And so you're saying, what I hear what you're saying. Well, Christina, I mean, go. We've only got a minute left. Well, I was just going to say that exactly. I don't think 
I still don't think that, you know, watching a video of this class is the same as being in it because you don't have Professor Nesson yelling at you from, like, you know, across the Internet. Um, so, like, I, I think really comparing your law, um, law degree repeatedly to, you know, the stack of books you have in the library is just not a fair comparison. And, like, I, I know that was addressed, but I just really want to emphasize that. Okay. All right. So it has come to our witching hour, and it's just for me to thank you for participating and thank all of you for participating and ask you if you will join me in thanking our guests. <laughs>